This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll talk with historian Rick Perlstein about white backlash politics. Will Trump in 2020 be like Nixon in 1968 or Reagan in 1980? Also, Ella Taylor has some recommendations for virus time TV watching this week police procedurals with women detectives. First up, in almost all our big cities, we've seen massive protests against racist police violence after the murder of George Floyd by that Minneapolis cop. In in almost every city, the police response to protests over police violence has been more police violence. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page, We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Outside uh, the windows of your uh, place there in our nation's capital, uh, we hear a a lot of things are happening in the streets. We read about Trump's Bible photo op on Monday. We saw about his statement that he would send troops to, quote, quickly solve the problem, close quote, in American cities. Why don't we start with the Bible and then move on to the troops? Well, of course, and, and you know, many people have, have noted that uh, he was asked whether it was his Bible. He said no. Uh, people have said, you know, if he just opened it up and, and read from it, uh, he would likely have come up with some more, much more humane quote than anything uh, that his, uh, his policies have, uh, have illustrated. Um, what struck me, actually, was his awkwardness, even just in holding the thing. It, 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 it seemed as if, you know, I mean, some people have specifically sort of dealt with the biblical side of this, but I, I, I just want to deal with the book side of this. It, it, it appeared that the idea of holding a book was sort of alien to him, that this was a new experience and he wasn't quite sure how to do it. So I did, you know, I just thought that was throw this into the, you know, uh, realm of discussion, that, that holding a book was uh, you know, kind of an awkward uh, and unusual thing, obviously, for our current president to do. Well, especially when you've uh, just had the, t- the uh, demonstrators tear gassed in, and uh, cleared from the steps of the church where you're going to hold up this book. Including uh, some of the priests at that church. Uh, it wasn't as if uh, they, you know, uh, were attempting to have some kind of uh, actual religious healing moment. It was quite the contrary. The whole thing was about uh, going to war, uh, and he wanted to have the uh, the church uh, backdrop as if he was presumably uh, defending it, although the uh, archbishop of the Episcopal Church in D.C. condemned it, and uh, the, the archbishop of the Catholic Church in D.C. has condemned it, and I imagine if other denominations had archbishops, uh, they'd likely <laughs> condemn it too. Well, his statement on troops, let me quote it to make sure we, we don't make a mistake here. If, it was an if statement, if. if a city or state refuses to take the actions necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them, close quote. All of us historians have been scrambling, emailing each other to recall exactly how Ike 
sent those federal troops to Little Rock in 1957 to protect school integration. Uh, you've been looking into this too. Yeah, I mean, it, it, let, 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 let's be honest. There have been instances where presidents had similar decisions. Uh, in, in the 19th century, sending in the army was a popular way for uh, business-oriented, uh, if not business-purchased presidents to break strikes. Um, in, in the 20th century, I think one of the, when, when I've occasionally written, uh, it, it, when asked what was the leftmost thing Franklin Roosevelt ever did, uh, I said it was nothing. He did not send in <laughs> troops uh, for the, to, to quell the general strikes in 1934 in uh, San Francisco and Minneapolis, and he did not send in troops to break the auto workers' sit-down strike uh, against General Motors in Flint, Michigan, and by virtue of those decisions, he significantly helped the unionization and the coming of mass prosperity for the next 40 years to the American working class. Um, he specifically talked about this uh, to, uh, to the press at one point and said he was getting all these messages he should come in with guns blazing, and he, you know, he said no. So that was Franklin Roosevelt. And then, as you noted, in the event of, in, in the case of Little Rock and Eisenhower sending in troops to protect nine little kids, there have been certainly instances where presidents uh, sent in troops essentially to protect life and limb of African-Americans who would otherwise literally be lynched. In the case of uh, Abraham Lincoln in New York City in the riots of 1863, which, which saw the deaths by mob of well over 100 African-Americans. Um, and you know, the, the, the greatest instance of, of sending in troops uh, is, is under uh, President Grant, the somewhat recently rehabilitated President Grant, since historians have finally noted, he really sought to uh, um, work on behalf of uh, greater rights and equality for African Americans. And of course, he did that during Reconstruction, and he sent in troops to specifically to break up the Ku Klux Klan, which, which, which he did throughout his presidency. And he knew that not only was this unpopular with Southern whites, but with Northern whites who were simply getting tired of having uh, troops uh, taken away from, uh, you know, their uh, civilian, uh, civilian lives in the North, uh, where it was unpopular with them too. But Grant had sort of a sense of duty, which led him to do this. On the other hand, I can't think of a, of a single president who did this quite, you know, for political calculation, uh, uh, as much as, uh, as Donald Trump said he would do this. It clearly, you know, he's been ineffectual, to put it mildly, in dealing with the COVID-19 virus and now in, in dealing with a horrendous economic crisis. But look, he can do something here. He can send in the army and smash heads. So for one thing, this, you know, he hopes will endear him not only to his base, but to the presumable swing voters, uh, among whom a law and order campaign will work, and it's seriously questionable whether he has really can claim the mantle of, of law and order, since he's kind of a sectarian thug, um, and it, it, it appeals to his sectarian thug impulse, to his autocratic impulse. You know, Trump's uh, idea of president uh, is to be a, uh, a provocateur and, if needs be, violent agitator uh, uh, for white nationalism. And uh, that's certainly what we saw when he uh, spoke on Monday and, and walked over to the church. Well, let's talk about L.A. Uh, in, 
In your days at the LA Weekly, you covered the 1992 Rodney King uprisings. They I were sure did, yeah. Of course, those were provoked by uh, a videotape of of uh, a gang of cops mercilessly beating Rodney King after a traffic stop. Uh, uh, the riots came af- after four cops were uh, four of the cops involved in that beating were acquitted. What do you see as the differences between the Rodney King uh, uprisings in, in L.A. in 1992 and today's protests in L.A. and everywhere else over the police killing of George Floyd? There, there are a lot of differences. Uh, and, and the main difference be- between today and uh, the, the Rodney King uprising of 1992 and all of the uprisings of the 1960s is the composition of the, the crowds. Uh, uh, particularly in the 60s, they were predominantly African-American uh, and the protests were largely confined to African-American communities and the, uh, the looting was perversely confined to African-American communities too. Uh, by 1992, uh, it was still predominantly African-American, uh, although the protests did move out of South Central LA and uh, in, in, into other, uh, other neighborhoods. Uh, today, the biggest difference all around the country is the large degree of racial diversity of the protests. Uh, this, the, you know, the, uh, the George Floyd murder, uh, I think, finally galvanized what was sort of a, a unspoken sentiment among many Americans that, okay, the racism we have is deadly and awful, but we don't know what to do about it. And millions of Americans clearly at this point have decided, damn it, they're going to do something about it. They're going to protest. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's also, you know, since this is mainly young people, it, it, it shouldn't be that surprising. We already know from the politics of the last several years uh, that American young people, millennials and Gen Zers, are probably the leftmost generation uh, possibly in American history. We've mainly seen that on issues of the economy and on issues of climate change. Now we see it on issues of race, which, which, which really makes sense. Uh, uh, it shouldn't be that surprising, and it's, uh, it's heartening. Well, let's talk about the cops in L.A. <clears throat> of course, there have been decades of protest about police violence from in L.A. from community groups and from the ACLU. Uh, and that culminated in 2000 in a Justice Department investigation and then a consent decree by which the LAPD agreed to federal supervision to make sure it was complying with the law. <clears throat> that federal consent decree ruling the LAPD lasted for 12 years, 12 years where the LAPD had to submit to frequent federal audits and prove it was not engaging in physical abuse of, of, physical abuse of suspects or evidence tamper, tampering or perjury. Uh, and the, the federal uh, consent decree ended only in 2013. <clears throat> and yet here we are again, Seven years after that, uh, the LAPD killing people of color in 2020 and responding brutally to protest rallies and marches. Why can't the LAPD change its ways? 
Well, you know, I would generalize this to virtually every uh, police department that I know about in the United States. It's uh, uh, that there is, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, most police departments still have the sense that, uh, uh, you know, that the people they police are somehow an, an alien force and, uh, uh, and dangerous. Uh, and, you know, we, let, I mean, to be brutally honest about it, let's, let's face it, most, still a majority of, of the police uh, and people joining the police in, in most cities, certainly not all, but most cities, are still working class whites. And we need to look at, you know, w what we know about the current politics of the white working class, its affinity for Donald Trump, and presumably, therefore, for the kind of uh, white nationalist, white racist positions he espouses, um, you know, and th this is this is a real problem. And you know, I, I, I'm not saying that police abuse is confined to white cops. It's uh, it, it can spread, uh, but you know, oftentimes you you find a white cop in a more senior position uh, and uh, less senior uh, patrol officers not willing to uh, uh, really go up against, uh, up against him. So there's a whole culture, there's a whole personnel issue. Um, I mean, if I had the uh, ability, if I were running a Metropolitan Police Department, I would try to put all my white cops on desk duty uh, and take them off the streets. Uh, beyond that, there's all kinds of, I think, good proposals that go beyond conventional police reform to not sending the cops out for a range of uh, of issues for domestic violence and, and mental health issues and homelessness and things like that, but sending social workers and uh, and people like that out when there's uh, when when there's an emergency, and I think you know we need to um, go beyond what is sometimes uh, a requirement that uh, police live in the city they're policing and make them live in the neighborhood they're policing. That at least would I think literally and figuratively change the complexion of some policing. But there's no question that we have a huge uh, uh, policing problem that no city appears to have done a really great job of, uh, of fixing. <clears throat> and let me also talk about the police unions. Everywhere police unions protect bad cops. Not all cops are bad cops. We'd like to get rid of the bad cops, but there in California has a law that we are not allowed to know the names of the cops who've been found guilty of misconduct by their own police departments. And this is because the unions are an incredibly power. The police unions are incredibly power, politi powerful political force in the state of California. The uh, city governments are intimidated by them. The state legislature is intimidated by them. We have to do something to break the political power of the police union so we can get rid of the bad cops? Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, the, the, I, I think the law you referred to is actually passed during Jerry Brown's first go-round as governor. Uh, I, I'm beginning to think that there are a lot of, you know, democratic cities, and most cities are heavily democratic, where the police unions have had a, a lot of clout, and uh, where it's now politically possible for elected officials uh, to be less cowed and intimidated by them. I, 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 you know, cities are now also electing a generation of district attorneys who are uh, committed to uh, less prosecution and less incarceration. I think that kind of changing urban sentiment 
uh, can be, uh, you know, also reflected in uh, uh, elected officials simply disregarding the political wishes of, uh, of, of a lot of police unions. If I may, right after Rodney King, I, one of the things I was struck by in 1992 when I was editing the LA Weekly was that LA police chiefs traditionally had made electoral endorsements for city government, including for mayor. Uh, and this struck me as utterly ridiculously bizarre. How do you get the power to endorse a person who is nominally your supervisor? Um, and we canvassed the 20 largest American cities and found that Los Angeles was the only one where this was the case. And we wrote about this and uh, the police reform document of 1992, which was, came from something called the Christopher Commission, headed by Warren Christopher, uh, demanded an end to that practice. For a while it ended. I'm not quite sure where it stands today since I'm no longer in Los Angeles, but uh, that was just emblematic of the idiocy of uh, handing the police uh, really, you know, power over basic governmental and political questions, which should no more fall in their purview than questions of domestic and foreign policy should fall under the purview of the army. One, one last thing. Uh, you found Trump's model for dealing with civil unrest in a very unlikely place. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, if, uh, the Washington Post actually uh, linked to a story they had run a couple of years ago, which linked to an interview he gave to Playboy, the old Playboy interview thing, uh, in 1990, uh, which was uh, shortly after uh, Tiananmen Square. And he, for some reason, decided to comment on that. And here, and here's his his comment to Playboy in 1990, just after one year after Tiananmen Square. Quote: When the students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it. Then they were vicious. They were horrible, but they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country is right now perceived as weak, as being spit on by the rest of the world, close quote. Donald Trump in 1990. Was the United States being spit on by the rest of the world in 1990? Actually, it was being anointed as the world's sole superpower with the decline of Soviet communism. So, I mean, in general, it's an insane, ridiculous quote as far as that goes. But also, it's, a, you know, in hindsight, an absolutely chilling prediction of uh, Trump's idea of what serious statecraft is, which is uh, bringing in the troops from afar, which is what they did in Beijing, uh, to beat the crap out of, uh, out of protesters wanting democracy. It sounds uh, uh, a lot, you know, he's, he's true to what he said in 1990. He's an autocrat, was wishing to be an autocratic thug then, and he's hoping to be an autocratic thug now. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. This was great. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The media, especially local TV news, has been devoting a lot more time to images of black people looting 
than covering black people speaking at organized rallies or protest marches. In the past, these kinds of images of looters were used by Republicans to mobilize white voters. We call it backlash. The Watts Uprising of 1965 was followed one year later by the election of Ronald Reagan as California governor. The 1967 riots in Newark and Detroit were followed a year later by the election of Richard Nixon as president. Trump, of course, is trying to play the law and order card, especially this week. But can Trump do what Nixon did with white backlash? And when it comes to backlash, will America in 2020 be like America in 1968 or Reagan in 1980? For comment, we turn to America's historian of white backlash, Rick Perlstein. He wrote the classic book, Nixonland. It was a New York Times bestseller and picked as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by over a dozen publications. Then came The Invisible Bridge, another bestseller, and now the third of his trilogy is on the way, the long-awaited Reaganland, which will be published in August. He's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Rick Perlstein, welcome back. Hi, always a pleasure. Well, before we talk about whether white backlash will get Trump reelected in November, let's talk about how it worked for Nixon in 1968. Well, he squeaked by. Of course, it was a very close election. And of course, he had the benefit of a third-party candidate uh, to triangulate against rhetorically, right? So George Wallace uh, really made Richard Nixon's rhetoric look like, you know, uh, Sunday in the park. This is the guy who said, I'm talking about Wallace, that if a protester lay down in his limousine, he'd tell his limousine driver to speed up. So Nixon was asked by a black reporter what he meant by law and order. And he said, uh, to me, law and order must be combined with justice. That's what I want for America. I want the kind of law and order that deserves respect. Uh, just the kind of thing you couldn't imagine uh, George Wallace saying, just the kind of thing you couldn't imagine Donald Trump saying. Um, Richard, Richard Nixon was a very disciplined politician. Uh, and like Ronald Reagan, he understood that even if you are appealing to white voters based on their racial fears, Right voters didn't want to see themselves as racist, and they didn't want to see themselves as associating with a politician who was seen as racist. So, of course, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan used the technique we, we know as dog whistling, right? Uh, of course, um, you know, Richard Nixon did things like choose a running mate, Spiro Agnew, who said that looters should be shot. Um, so he very cleverly played both sides. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, tries to play both sides. I mean, he says, you know, MAGA loves the blacks, but you know, it's, it, it, it simply isn't convincing. And it's a very different context. Uh, have, have you seen this, um, this new polling from uh, Morning Consult? Uh, they asked, uh, which of the following is a more serious problem, police violence against the public or violence against the police? Tell me what. <laughs> um, turns out that among uh, all U.S. adults, 55% to 30% to 30 uh, say that police violence against the public is a bigger problem 
that's inconceivable in 1968 and 1980. Even even uh, 31% of Republicans are willing to say that uh, police violence against the public is the bigger problem. Wow, so it's, it's a different it's a different world. Uh, um, the 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 disturbances now are are building off ten years of just about of you know organizing against police abuses. Uh, we're ten years on from Oscar Grant, uh, you know, shot to death by the Bay Area Transit Police, and uh, the message has you know clearly gotten through. And also, uh, you know, you had very dramatic, of course, television images of the rioting in the '60s. Um, but the guys who controlled the camera really weren't interested in uh, showing uh, the kind of things the police were doing, like shooting people in cold blood after riots were contained in a place like Newark. Uh, folks are able to take cell phone footages of, um, you know, cops pulling down people's masks and spraying them with tear gas as their hands are up, you know, or... Um, a pile of bricks, you know, uh, two miles away from the rioting that, you know, some police superintendent claims, you know, have been stashed by uh, rioters. Um, we're seeing a pretty high level of critical citizenship, and uh, that's not a redounding to Donald Trump's political benefit. Um, I've, I've also seen polling that um, Joe Biden has gained two points since this stuff began. Let's also talk about Reagan in 1980, which, of course, is the center of your new book, Reaganland. He was 1980. Of course, he was challenging the incumbent Jimmy Carter. Reagan opened his presidential campaign in Mississippi at the Neshoba County Fair. That's the county where three civil rights workers had been killed by the Klan at the start of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. Let's say their names, Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman. In 1980, white Southerners knew what Neshoba County meant. And of course, black people did too. Reagan was sending an unmistakable signal that racism would be the starting point of his presidency. And of course, he did carry the South, every state except Georgia, where Carter had been governor, and win the 1980 election. I have a slightly revisionist account of that famous movement. <laughs> Uh, you know, I went into the documents, uh, read some original research by a young historian named Marcus Witcher. One thing that, that I'd point out is that uh, Reagan only won Mississippi by one point, whereas Barry Goldwater got 87% of the vote there, right? Um, turns out that uh, the backlash against Reagan doing that was immediate and intense, so much so that uh, a Mississippi Republican official thought it might lose him Mississippi. Uh, he, he, I, I'm convinced, uh, first of all, the guy who, who suggested saying states' rights was, uh, Trent Lott. That's the guy who came up with the idea, picked him up at the airport and said, why don't you try saying states' rights? And if you actually listen to the speech, it's a terrible speech. It's a 10 minute speech. He, he, he goes on and on with his jokes and badinage for like five or six or seven minutes. He starts going into his kind of anti-government talk and he just kind of mumbles, you know, the state's right part. It's not, it's not a blood curdling cry like you would see at the Neshoba County, cry, uh, County Fair uh, from a native Mississippi politician. Now, he started his primary campaign in November of 1979 on tour in Southie, South Boston and Cicero and Milwaukee, which was the most, my hometown, which is the most uh, segregated city. Uh, so there's no question that he was, you know, playing a dog whistle campaign. Um, 
But I would argue that the Neshoba thing was not typical. That was not kind of uh, uh, the kind of campaign he was trying to go for. He was trying to uh, play both sides against the middle on that one. And as a matter of fact, it's actually an accident of history. His campaign was supposed to start out where he went the next day. Do you know where, do you know where he went the next day for a speech? It was the Urban League in New York because the campaign saw it as such an important strategic, uh, strategic move to prove to white voters that Ronald Reagan was not a bigot. Uh, his, his campaign strategist and pollster Richard Worthland would, would talk about how they would talk about, talk, he, they would have Reagan speak to black audiences in order to reassure white audiences. Now that doesn't necessarily make it less wicked. It might be even more wicked than, you know, just kind of saying outright what he's up to. And of course, when he was president, he still managed to cut the um, public housing budget by about 72%, uh, 86% in Chicago. Um, but the difference between Trump and Nixon and Reagan was precisely the care with which Nixon and Reagan signaled two things at once, the public. One is that they're willing to back policies that advantage whites over blacks, but two, that they weren't gonna say anything like, for example, uh, Mexico is sending its rapists. Reagan had a whole liturgy of, of wonderful, uplifting things to say about, uh, you know, supposedly the, the, you know, the army being integrated, you know, after a black quartermaster, you know, manned the guns at Pearl Harbor. It was completely false. There, there was, in fact, a black quartermaster who heroically manned the guns. But as, 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 Professor, as, as Professor Wiener knows, you know, the army wasn't integrated until, you know, some you know, eight years later, right? Um, but one of the gifts that Ronald Reagan gave to people who were reactionary in their politics, especially around race, was this kind of sentence of innocence that he was able to kind of, they were able to bring home with them after hearing Ronald Reagan's speech. Well, we've talked about the, the ways in which Trump is not another Nixon and not another Reagan. Also, America in 2020 is not the America of 1968. Uh, just demographically speaking, I hate to be a demographic determinist, but America is a very different country today than it was then. I believe you know about this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and it's, it's a different country demographically. And clearly people are much more receptive to the message that they're seeing on their screens that cops is cops. You know, uh, as you know, from your, 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 your new book on Los Angeles, um, you know, uh, Chief Parker, the Los Angeles police chief would, would recruit his police officers in the Mississippi Delta, right? You know, when they came to him to interview him for the McCone report about what happened in Watts, he said it was because one of those monkeys picked up a rock and everyone just decided to imitate him, right? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I cannot tell you uh, how high-minded and, 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 and racially healing today's police chiefs are. Uh, because, you know, the head of the police union in Philadelphia is allegedly uh, Minneapolis, I'm sorry, uh, a white supremacist, right? Uh, police unions are basically America's fry corps. And we're seeing it. We're seeing police riots in every city. We're seeing police ignore looting and uh, trying to bait peaceful protesters and 
visiting violence upon them. And I see that as no more reformed uh, than what we saw in the 1960s. Only now it's a little more frightening because it's out in the open. And there's a uh, a population, let's say people under 30, certainly people under 30 are well aware and very mobilized around the idea that we have to control racist police violence. Right. And, and a lot more uh, white people believe we need to control. Uh, I think Watts and the riots in the 60s, especially because they happen every year, were just such a shock to pe- white people's senses because they had no idea. You know, Lyndon Johnson, you know, six or seven days before the Watts riots, you know, standing under the Capitol Dome with Martin Luther King and signing the Voting Rights Act and saying, you know, we finally broken the last vestige of the fierce and the fierce and ancient bonds of slavery. You know, he was basically suggesting, all but suggesting, that America's racial problems were over. And then suddenly you turn on your TV and KTLA with their news helicopter are showing you block after block burning down. Uh, I don't think anyone is, is surprised that black people are pissed off these days. Uh, we've talked a, uh, about Trump. We haven't talked about Biden yet. Biden came of age in the era of white backlash politics. Biden has been politically shaped by white backlash politics. Uh, can he move beyond that, do you think? It's fascinating. I mean, if you look at uh, Bronco Marsitek's book, uh, Yesterday's Man, it's kind of a political biography of Biden. He ran for re-election in 1972 on a platform of, I'm a more effective, segregate, the most effective segregationist in, in, in the Senate. There's no way around it. But I have an African-American friend who makes a really interesting point to me. Uh, he said he's never had a, a white uh, he's never he, he's he, he's he's an engineer and he's never had a white employee treat him with as much respect as a boss as Joe Biden treated Barack Obama. He's modeled for white America uh, what it would mean to um, basically be uh, a, a, a at the office and inferior to a black person. Uh, I'm not going to defend everything uh, Joe Biden has done and said of the long course of his career. But I think his rhetoric uh, in this crisis has been exemplary and much more akin uh, in its empathy and its thoughtfulness uh, to RFK in 1968, the RFK who you know, stood on a street corner in Indianapolis and broke the news to the African-Americans of Indianapolis that Martin Luther King had been assassinated and said, as Joe Biden is saying now, I know what it feels like to lose a loved one. He said to violence, right? And was credited for Indianapolis not having riots. Of course, he won the Indiana primary. And I think this is the voice in Joe Biden's head. And he has not ventured one iota of that kind of, you know, Bill Clinton, 1992, you know, speaking in, at Stone Mountain, Mountain, Georgia, in front of a group of black men in orange jumpsuits, you know, in a photo opportunity orchestrated by Al Fromm of the DLC. He's not doing that. And I don't see any Democrats who are doing that. So credit where credit is due. Credit where credit is due. Uh, in a couple of minutes left here, tell us a little bit about the new book, uh, uh, Reaganland. Obviously, you've got some very important stuff here about our misconceptions about how backlash politics was the key to the Reagan strategy in 1980. What, what are your other central themes here? 
Uh, well, I mean, I basically, it's an enormous book, and there's lots of tributaries. The idea is, you know, Reagan built a coalition, like all successful politicians. And part of it is, uh, you know, explaining the rise of the Christian right, which, by the way, very much was like, we're not segregationist. We're not segregationists anymore, but poured that same energy and that same hate and that same eliminationist feral rage into hating gay people. It was just substituting one enemy for another. So I talk about that, how that coalition came together. I talk about how the business backlash against regulation came together. And that's absolutely fascinating. Basically, business was pretty accommodating to the liberal state you know, in the golden age of capitalism. Then in the 1970s, second half, when their profits started declining after the oil, oil, Arab oil shock, I say that they kind of achieved class consciousness, right? And just kind of started acting as a class uh, against, you know, backing conservative challengers against, you know, moderate Democratic incumbents. And then there's, of course, Reagan himself. And, you know, he plays a role. And there's also a big thread in the book about uh, Jimmy Carter's obsession with austerity and how consonant he was with the neoliberalism that was coming to the fore in the Democratic Party. So it's all there. All that blood, sweat, and tears. And how many pages? It's going to be about um, 1,100 pages. But? According to uh, uh, the Kirkus Review, there's not a wasted word. Rick Perlstein, not a wasted word in his 1,100-page new book, his long-awaited new book, Reaganland. It will be published in August. Rick Perlstein, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. We can't go to the movie theaters, but we can watch stuff at home. And so for some advice, we turn again to Ella Taylor, She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What have you got for us today? I have women detectives for you. Uh, one major one and then a bunch of others that I would just like to flag. And the major one is Unbelievable, which airs on, on uh, Netflix, is one of the best police procedurals that I've seen, uh, whether male or female. It's based upon a real-life rape case that turned into multiple rape cases, all committed by the same person. I shouldn't say any more than that for people who haven't seen it yet. Um, and it is a procedural, but it was based on, t on a real life case in, in the state of Washington, where a young woman named Marie, who's beautifully played by Caitlin Diva of Booksmart. So she, she, this is clearly not a comedic role and she shows a tremendous range here. The series begins with her rape, and there are two male detectives who are put on the case who are quite open to her account, but they make her say it over and over and over again. And as happens in such cases, the story gets a little bit different. 
under the influence of a former foster mother um, with dubious intent, they come to doubt Marie's story. And she is so devastated by this that she recants um, and says that it never happened. And the case is closed until two women detectives get together in Colorado <laughs> and they notice similarities between um, Marie's closed case and two other cases that they're both working on separately. And Merritt Weaver plays um, one of the detectives and Tony Collette plays another. And the amazing thing is it's very difficult to act Tony Collette off the screen, but Merritt Weaver does it. <laughs> um, they're very different personalities. Merritt Weaver has a, a quiet, contemplative, patient personality. And uh, um, Tony Collette, who has a very bouncy Pon angry ponytail is reactive and um, very, a little bit trigger happy, not literally, but in terms of her reactions to the case, but she's also very thorough. This is not a female bonding detective story at all. They really get on each other's nerves a lot. It's wonderful to see because it's a little closer to real life than all these uh, Earth Mother uh, detective stories, but together they 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 in this very dogged fashion they move from one case to another case to another case, and all the time, although they aren't very much on the side of the victims, they're also on the side of pr procedure. So you've got two stories going on simultaneously in all eight episodes of this. One is Marie's story and her plight, actually, because nobody believes her. And her peers reject her once the case is closed. Everybody uh, except one good foster mother rejects her. But these two detectives, especially Merritt Weaver, who's a par parent herself, become uh, really sympathetic to her. And they're not dealing with male um, prejudice against female detectives because they're the bosses. <laughs> they're the ones with the power, which is the wonderful twist about this series. It's not about how difficult it is to be on the police force. It's about Marie's story opening up uh, and about them helping to open it up. And it is also about an apology from quarters where it should come from. So there are no bad or good people here. The series is beautifully directed often by Lisa Cholodenko, who made The Kids Are All Right and Laurel Canyon. It's as graphic as it needs to be, uh, but not in an exploitative way. It's more um, the shooting of the rape scenes is impressionistic and fast uh, and repeated as it should be. Uh, and it's exactly the correct way to, uh, to deal with such things. It's very dramatic, um, but it's not sensationalized in, in any way. Well, the story of the male cops who do not believe a female, a woman who claims to be raped is kind of now a familiar one. The, the big thing that I learned from this that I didn't know is how little police departments have to do with each other. So if one person carries out almost exactly the same type of rape, but in different states or even different counties, the cases are never connected. And the, what's unbelievable here is the way these cases do get connected. That's the procedural part of it. 
And it's extremely satisfying to watch. As you say, it was a true story, and the credits for Unbelievable are pretty amazing. The whole true story came from a couple of reporters in 2015 who wrote a news article titled An Unbelievable Story of Rape. They were T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. It was originally published by ProPublica. Of course, it would be a nonprofit uh, and the Marshall Project. And they won a lot of journalism awards for their work. So first of all, the story was a prize-winning expose of failure of police work and then the success of good police work. And then Unbelievable became a TV miniseries for Netflix. And among the so-called co-creators, you never quite know what these credits mean on these TV shows, are two very familiar names, Ayelet Waldman and Michael Chabon. He, of course, is the award-winning novelist who wrote, among other books, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. His wife, Ayelet Waldman, is an Israeli-American novelist. She writes mystery stories. She's written seven in a series called The Mommy Track Mysteries, and it turns out she also spent three years working as a federal public defender. Um, her most recent book, uh, it's impossible not to mention, 2017, has the intriguing title, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. So those are the people who made this into a, such a great TV series, which has won a whole lot of awards. It has. Um, you know, the, I think that the, the person in overall charge is Susanna Grant, um, who's a wonderful uh, screenwriter. Um, I believe she wrote the screenplay for The Black Stallion, a very wonderful movie. Um, and she has also here directed several of the, of the episodes, uh, including the final one. So I just wanted to mention her, too, because uh, all three of them are, are producers on the series. So you say you have more women detectives to recommend to us in addition to Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver. Yes, I do. And, and uh, in all of the cases, I've chosen ones where the fact that, that it's a woman is dealt with very matter-of-factly. Um, it's not, you know, they're, they're not Me Too kind of films, at least not on the surface. One is a French series endless French series. I, I'm not even sure that I've reached the end of it, but it is absolutely spectacular. It's called Spiral or Spiral, and the French title is Engrenage. Um, and there's a female detective there who's a little bit like the Tony Collette character. You know, she's very out there. She's extremely good, but also very aggressive detective who's constantly straying from the rules. She has a very extravagant sex life, and I do not mean love life, I mean sex life. And it's really a procedural about how um, Paris police force goes about dealing um, often with issues of race um, and class. It's extremely well done. I highly recommend it. And I believe it's on Amazon. If you start watching it now, you'll never do anything else again. And the coronavirus will end and you'll still be in the middle of it. Um, there's also the well-known Broadchurch, uh, in which the wonderful Olivia Coleman plays a British detective opposite David Tennant, a wonderful uh, series, or rather series one and series three um, are excellent, and series two you can skip. There is on Acorn, another uh, British streaming service, 
a lesser known series called Hidden, which is about a Welsh woman detective whose husband may well be in a, su a suspect in a murder case that she's working on. Um, there's Top of the Lake, which you mentioned last week as one of your favorites with um, Elizabeth Moss. And also, I think perhaps my favorite of all of them is a Swedish-Danish series called The Bridge, in which the lead female detective is on the autism spectrum. So that takes us to a whole new um, place. And that is also shown but not exploited. Um, I know that some people on the spectrum have taken issue with it, but it's a very complicated series that revolves around cases um, on the bridge the, that exists between, the physical bridge that exists between Sw uh, Sweden and Denmark. So I just wanted to flag those. There are others, but in my view, these are the best. Ella Taylor with News You Can Use, TV in the Age of the Virus. Ella, thank you so much for this week's recommendations. You are so welcome. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.